2: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: In today's episode, we've got the second part of our latest Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask episode on Ancient Greece. In these podcasts, we combine popular search queries with questions that you've sent to us via our social media channels. Since this was such a big subject, we've broken it down into two parts. You can find the first part from last Sunday on our podcast feed. Our expert is Professor Paul Cartledge, a classicist based at the University of Cambridge and putting the questions to him was our digital editor, Emma Mason.
4: What sort of of role did women play? What, What rights did they have in ancient
2: Greece? Again, one must distinguish between different cities. You can't just say Greek women, you've got to say Spartan women as opposed to Athenian women. Actually, that's rather a useful distinction here, because whereas Spartan women could own land, Whereas Spartan women, because of their husband's being constantly on a military footing and away from home much of the time they actually ran their homes the spartan women they had control and because they were in a funny way respected because being a mother of a spartan young boy and man it wasn't an easy thing and spartan women's voices are heard in a way that other greek women's voices are not heard So for all those reasons, Spartan women folk vis-a-vis their men, seem to have been relatively privileged. And um, relatively, I mean very relatively, their situation, their status was superior to that of their uh, Athenian sisters, who could not own property of any size, who were always underage. In terms of the law, they were never adult. They always had a male guardian. Normally their father, until they got married when they got married their husband or if their husband died uh, his nearest male relative so it might be her brother-in-law or whatever so spartan women were always um, much superior to the athenian in the sense they were fully adult at law whereas athenian women were minors at law on the other hand within the Athenian citizen women population, one must make distinctions. And I've already, of course, talked about rich and poor. If you were the wife of a rich man, or if your dad was rich, so gave you a very big dowry, then your situation was considerably more comfortable than if you were a poor Athenian woman. No dowry to speak of had to work as it's the old thing about the double oppression of women they both work outside the home and then in the home they also have to work for their husband then uh, that makes a very big difference whether you were rich or poor whether you had a slave to do some work for you or you did all your own work yourself another distinction was whether or not you held a religious office And to begin with, the only Athenian women qualified to hold religious offices were aristocrats. And the Athenians did have a notion of those who were aristocrats and those who weren't. So in other words, we would say those with titles and those who who hadn't. And the most senior um, religious office in the entire Athenian state was the priestess hood of the patron goddess of the state. This is Athena of the city and only women from a certain family aristocratic were eligible to hold that office of state so i mean it's like the archbishop of canterbury as it were she was a woman in athens and the richer you were broadly speaking the more confined you were the key worry for a wealthy husband was that your wife might have an affair and an affair that produced a child and a child that would therefore potentially have a claim on your estate without being your genetic descendant and that would be extremely both irritating in other words a matter of um, status you would feel affronted but also economically potentially um, not a good thing either so um, sometimes the phrases used oriental seclusion I mean it's a, a, a phrase from another period but what it means is that um, as we know in some parts of the world today certain types of women are particularly um, supervised chaperoned not allowed to go out in public at all or if allowed out only with a male relative watch etc etc well many Athenian women found themselves in that situation whereas many spies Spartan women did not because their condition, their status in life, their mode of life was very different from that of the Athenians. We're talking mainly about urban um, situations and there are court cases arising from alleged infractions. In other words, where one party alleges that the other party has had sex with his wife or whatever and therefore is um, suing
4: And is it true that um, a husband who found out his wife was being unfaithful with another man could could murder the male lover without fear of...
2: Prosecution. It, all that you say there is true until the last few words, without fear of prosecution. Because what, um, suppose you are of the family that the man has been killed, um, allegedly by the husband, the husband alleges he was killed because he was an adulterer, The husband alleges that he found the adulterer in bed with his wife. You've got to have that um, literal contiguity. It's not enough that he's just walking out of the door. He's got to be actually in flagrante delicto. Well, suppose you're the, um, I don't know, the wife or the brother or the father of such a man who's killed. Might you not think, ah, this guy wanted to kill my son my brother my cousin and claimed he'd been having sex with his wife when he really hadn't that was just a made-up excuse well we have one such trial exactly of that nature where the man on trial is the one who killed the man alleging that he killed him legitimately because he was in flagrante delicto with his wife so um, the answer to your question is yes legally if a man a husband kills another man who is in bed with his wife at that moment that is not in itself a crime
4: And what was life like for female sex workers?
2: Right, big distinction has to be drawn here. It's again one of high and low, rich and poor. If you're a street walker, as we used to use the the phrase, in Greek you're a porne. It's where we get our word pornography from. And porne is based, the root is to buy. So you are a bought person bought for sex you're a sex worker but you're a bought sex worker and typically you operate either from a very you know your own sordid home in a poor part of i'm talking about athens here or you're a, a brothel prostitute and you're then called a porne you have a madam and And Madame has a pimp, and it's all quite familiar in terms of sordid, sort of low-class prostitution. Very cheap in the port of Piraeus, Um, sailors just there for a day, they want a bit of sex, they go to one of these brothels, so nothing particularly surprising about that. The surprising or the unusual, the peculiar to the ancient Greeks type of prostitution that is very, very different from that, is uh, involves a class of women who were known, it's a euphemism, as companions. Oh no, they're not sex workers. They are companions. And so the equivalent, I mean, insofar as it is an equivalent, is of the system in Japan of geishas some of whom, at any rate, will also have sex as well as entertain uh, you on music on the Samisen or whatever. So these companions were um, typically not Athenian in Athens. They were foreign women and they were well-educated. Now you ask, how did they become educated? Well, they came from educated homes in which the parents had not prevented them becoming literate. And in fact, they might even read poetry and so on and so on and they could play an instrument they could um in other words entertain not purely with their bodies let's put it that way well they were very expensive and so we're talking like the quarter of edo um you know where all the famous um woodcut etchings of those prostitutes the um, woodcuts this is something equivalent to that in athens high class prostitution in involving free, elite women, typically non-Athenian, with upper class, very rich um, Athenian men.
4: And you mentioned education there. So did, uh, did wealthy Athenian women receive any sort of education?
2: Yes, by and large, um, that would be the case, because um, there were certain um, situations in which it would be very um, helpful, to put it mildly, to be literate. <clears throat> so I mentioned the priestess hoods. Well, obviously, she would need to be literate. There would be documents to read, prayers to recite, all sorts of things. And um, the higher up the, the scale you go in terms of culture, well, hymns, um, of course, Um, poems of different sorts there are prayers a lot of things set to verse and um, there is in fact uh, one very famous Greek lady I mean there are are more than one Greek poetess known but the most famous is uh, a lady called Sappho in Greek, Sappho, she came from the island of Lesbos, which today sadly is a more famous or notorious for having lots of refugees. But Lesbos is off the Turkish coast, northwest um, Aegean, and Sappho and her female students or friends they both composed verses, sang verses, and most interesting of all, had them written down. In other words, they were preserved. That's why we know some of what Sappho actually composed and Plato who was not a great feminist in many ways but he was a great connoisseur of poetry he called Sappho the 10th muse she was so because muses are all female there are nine of them and one of them is a muse of poetry but she was um, so famous in his day this is about 400 BC in Athens that um, he thought that highly of her but by and large, most Athenian women most probably were at most literate. I mean, there wouldn't be much more than that. In Sparta, similar situation. We have dedications which um, Spartan women make to the gods. I offer this to Poseidon or to um, Hera or Athena or whatever. And in the Greek world, generally, one must assume most women were at best, functionally literate and numerate, but nothing much more than that. There were no schools, by the way. I mean, hardly any, I won't say no, there were hardly any formal educational establishments, even for boys. So, a fortiori, not for girls either.
4: There's an awful lot of interest online about um, homosexuality in ancient Greece and the practice of pederasty. Um, Maybe you could introduce that to us. What what was pederasty?
2: To us, it's sensitive because any sex with a child, which is what pice means, is in itself problematic and illegal. Piderastia literally means lust for, love of, in a strong sexual sense, Children, and it could be of either sex. The word "pice" is um, unisex. It could be an underage subadult, either male or female. But "pyderastia" refers specifically to boys and it is who is the arastees, who are the lovers who are the active um, element in this binary relationship they are adults so they're over 20 they might even be married they might be what you and I would call a preferred or exclusive homosexual but they might be married as well and that's of course not unknown in our society and The difficulty comes with just at what age was the younger, the junior, the sub-adult party, and how much agency would that junior partner have? In other words, if you're 12, you're probably going to be less able to have a say either in resisting or in uh, manipulating or determining the nature of the relationship with the older man than if you're 18. However, if you are 18... Or 17, 18, you're still a pice. You're still subject to that um, disability. You're not a, a legally independent adult. And therefore, you might well be the junior partner in a homosexual relationship with a man only a few years older than you. In other words, it might be quite equal. So let's put it this way. It's extremely complicated. You can't just say, "Oh, well, Peter Asdi was like this." It had lots of shades of gray. Very rarely was it criminalized, in other words, as such it was not a subject of a criminal action but if you were a rent boy in other words if you were let's say 17 and you openly or covertly offered your body for purely sexual uh, reasons to an adult male that could be subject to an accusation of pe- of um, criminal prostitution which would have political consequences There were rules forbidding sexual congress or sexual um, arrangements in the gymnasium. So lots of Greek cities had areas where you um, exercise because the Greeks were very keen on athletics, especially wrestling and they typically exercise nude which is why it's called a gymnasium gumnos means naked so there were rules barring you if you were a slave you couldn't go in the gymnasium because that would be too easy for a free citizen adult male to just do what he wanted to you so they were barred it was not allowed if you were under 40 to be in a gymnasium with young boys present so there were rules regulations it's not a free-for-all and that raises the question was there any sort of as there is today and of course we have reinforcement from scripture any negativity surrounding it was it thought to be in itself a questionable activity well there is this one area and it's about power and of course it's for that extent extremely contemporary when we think about male-female relations today if it was thought that the junior partner was being forced into it, let that's say his individuality, his identity was being denied as a free citizen. Though he was not adult, he was still free, then that was not good. And that was thought to be something to be frowned upon. And so the, as it were, predators of whom they they existed, who went around looking for young boys to get off with, to have sex with. That was frowned upon very strongly. And on the other hand, what we never know is exactly the balance between compulsion and free will in any relationship it's always difficult but where one person by definition is adult and the other one is by definition younger there's that imbalance and inequality by definition and therefore in that sense it was always problematic except and this is the one exception in the whole of the Greek world and it's Sparta where it seems that this relationship was not optional at all. In other words, if you're going to go through the educational cycle at Sparta, part of it is pairing up with an adult Spartan warrior for mutual benefit. The older partner instructs you is your mentor, the junior partner provides sexual satisfaction and companionship in a society where before you're married, it's actually very difficult to have any relation with the opposite sex. And so Spartans, like most Greeks, t- typically didn't marry till the age of 25 or older.
4: And was pederasty a factor for young girls as well?
2: There is just one passage in a very late source about Sparta. And it it's to do with education. So, since for the boys it was educational to be in a relationship with an older, with an adult male, as the girls had some form of public education, which is very extraordinary, and it involved athleticism as well as learning to read and write, then it's not utterly inconceivable what this source says, which is that very high ranking Spartan women might select what they took to be suitable girls, i.e. 16, 15, 16, before they were married, as a female partner. But, well, we we tend to think it's slightly dubious, the very notion, nowhere else in the Greek world, except, and then of course I go back to Sappho, And there, we're in Lesbos, we're in a much earlier period, some of the women might not have been Greek, it might have been a sort of international thing, and it was just particular to that place at that time, it doesn't become an established institution. But of course, Sappho has given her name to, it's an old name for a lesbian, um, namely a sapphic And sapphics are called sapphics after Sappho. Lesbians are called lesbians after the island of Lesbos, where Sappho came from.
4: And what about the perception of homosexuality more widely? Um, Was it celebrated in ancient Greece? Was Oscar Wilde right in his suggestion of a sort of gay utopia generation.
2: well he's both right and wrong insofar as there was no religious argument against it as there was for him judeo-christian um, tradition is very down on homosexuality um, insofar as it was celebrated in myth in the ancient world. Heracles had boyfriends, and that was great. Um, in those terms, compare it with late 19th century Victorian England. Boy, I would have taken ancient Greece any time if I was gay then. But on the other hand, it's complicated. Uh, for the reasons I've given, you've got to be careful. The protocols, how you do your Pederasty mattered. It wasn't just that it wasn't criminalized, it had to be done. In the proper way. And then there's a famous or rather notorious passage of Plato, and it's in the laws. And he's talking about: well, how should we regulate sexual relations? Are homosexual, as we call it, it's a modern term, are same-sex relations okay between men? Well, no, because they are unnatural why are they unnatural because they don't give rise to offspring reproductive naturalism he anticipates the christian view of the purpose of marriage being to produce legitimate offspring to have sex only within marriage well plato having previously in an earlier work celebrated through his mouthpiece socrates same-sex relationships of a it could be sexual but not exclusively sexual kind which elevates the behavior of both of them it's a sort of higher form of converse than purely physical which is what male female uh, might be thought to be because women were not educated to be equals with men typically in ancient greece so plato goes from in a way celebrating a form of idealized spiritualized same-sex homosexuality, to a position of very negative down on it. And if I was to be crude, I'd say, well, as he got older, (laughs) he wasn't that interested or that capable of having sex with anybody. He never married, which is very unusual. And um, I think, therefore, whether or not he was a as it were a preferred homosexual by the end he's pretty sour and embittered and he's quite down on any sort of what he considers deviant behavior and he has fierce punishments in this ideal state which is not very ideal by most of our uh, standards well
4: todd Pattern on Facebook asks why were homosexuality and bisexuality accepted in ancient Greece but not in Rome?
2: Uh, I've thought about this. It's very, very hard to say. I mean, one reason is if you conquer a people and you think yourself therefore superior to them you look for the things that differentiate your civilization from theirs and the romans singled out their abhorrence their rejection of this deviant um, custom among the greeks of homosexuality which they thought was effeminate at least one party in any homosexual relationship they thought must play the part of the woman so (laughs) it's not what a true roman masculine man should do and uh, you might immediately think as i immediately think what about the spartans they uh, institutionalized pederasty homosexuality they were no wimps so the point is the romans were being very selective in what they chose not to adopt from the greeks they actually adopted a great deal of other stuff but this was one custom which they like i mean the have been many other cultures that have thought it a terrible thing. And of course, typically any Judeo-Christian culture does officially think of it as a terrible thing in terms of its primary documents. So I think that's the answer. The Romans conquered the Greeks. Greeks were feeble. One reason they were feeble or one manifestation of their feebleness was their addiction to buggery.
4: Uh, So turning to religion, what role did religion play in ancient Greece? What what did people...
2: So first of all, it's slightly strange, and we have this phrase, the Greeks had a word for it. They didn't have a word for religion. So they had paraphrases, the things of the gods and the goddesses, but not religion as such, no one word, which is a Latin-derived term. The Greeks thought that the gods and the goddesses and heroes and heroines were everywhere. So um, the whole world is full of gods, Thales, a famous philosopher, said. So there wasn't a distinction in that we might have between the secular world and the religious world. Everything was more or less religious. Difference from anything um, um, post-Christianity, Islam, and of course Judaism is contemporary, Greeks were polytheists they believed there were many, many, many gods and goddesses, not monotheists, which means you believe there's one divinity. And they weren't even henotheists, which means you believe there are more than one god, and but one of them is the most important. So they were thoroughgoing polytheists and in a way pantheists
4: where was religion
2: practice there were separate spaces the greeks actually had a word meaning a cut out space so where a sanctuary which might or might not include a temple was so there are as it were shrines and specifically religious spaces in terms of an altar and a temple but religion was practiced everywhere you go to battle you slaughter a an animal before the battle to get the will of the gods you look at its liver, liver and then if it's favorable you go to battle if it's not you don't so battlefield you're at home you wake up in the morning you have your family hermes just outside your back door you pour a libation that is wine or some other liquid it might be olive oil and that is your way of making your peace with the gods constantly there's a toing and froing there's a sort of notion of a contract that if you the human do the gods favors if you look after them if you worship them give them their due then the gods are bound by contract to do you a favor in return it's a give and take so religion was everywhere in principle and Just about any phenomenon could be given a religious uh, interpretation. A rainbow, well, the Greeks uh, had a word for that, a goddess called Iris. The sun is a god, Helios. Or you look at a spring, ah, there's a nymph playing there, female. You pour a libation to that nymph. So everywhere, Greeks were massively religious. And that's why it's a bit of a paradox that some Greeks were able to draw a distinction and actually to even question whether the gods, I mean Zeus, Hermes and so on, were real or whether they were figments of human imagination. So in other words you get the beginnings of atheism through humanism as well as normally most Greeks being what you and I would call very religious.
4: And you mentioned Zeus and Hermes there. How many Greek gods and goddesses were
2: Absolutely countless in the sense that you can multiply one god or goddess by giving her or him a different epithet. I'll just give you one example, Athena. Athena Polyas is the patron goddess of Athens. But if you go up on the Acropolis, there are two other temples to different Athenas. One of them is Athena Parthenos, the virgin, the maiden. That's the Parthenon. And then there's another one called Athena Niki. If you own running shoes by Nike, that means victory. So there's one goddess, Three different manifestations. For the Greeks, three different goddesses. So there were twelve Olympians, in other words, a kind of stable family, dominated by Zeus. It's a patriarchy, remember, and his sister wife, full sister wife, Hera, they're as it were the senior members of the family, and then there are ten others. But they're just, I mean, I put it that way, they're the most powerful, but they are only 10, 12 out of thousands. And they were all thought to live on the top of the highest mountain in Greece, which is Mount Olympus, which is over 10,000 feet.
4: And one particularly popular search question I came across was, what were the ancient Greeks so so superstitious about?
2: There is an actual text. It's a very useful one. It's uh, by a pupil of Aristotle. So it's late in the 4th century BC. A man who came from the same island as uh, Sappho. He's called Theophrastus. And he wrote a, a work called Characters. And there were 30 of them. And they're, as it were, types. So, you know, the braggart um the oligarch well one of them is the superstitious man so what he's superstitious about oh gosh a black cat and on the right And it was at a crossroads, you know, so just like us, as it were, um, superstition in the very negative sense. But the Greek word, interestingly, which we translate superstition, which is a Latin-derived word, means literally fearing or fearful of um, demons. And the, the distinction there is gods are theoi, which is where we get theistic and theological, But demons are daimon, daimonion. It's where we get our word demon, daimonic, demonic, And so they're lesser. So a superstitious man makes the mistake of thinking that the most important supernatural powers are these rather undefined spirits floating around in the atmosphere, rather like you or I might think of COVID (laughs) in the atmosphere, drops, you know, well, The real thing a a religious, a properly religious person would say to him is don't worry about black cats. What you need to worry about is if you go to Delphi and Apollo's priestess tells you something you really don't want to hear. That's what you've got to do. Forget about all the others. They're relatively trivial.
4: And what role did oracles
2: play? Well, I just mentioned the Delphic Oracle. That was the most significant because it was thought to be the most holy, the most authoritative you consult an oracle by various means, um, for example, looking at entrails, or by um, getting a prophecy, which is a form of utterance, which is meant to be inspired, directly inspired by, in this case, Apollo. And it will tell you an answer to a question. And if you're an ordinary person, you're not a... um, statesman you're not heading a a public mission asking about some mega affair of state you want to know should I marry Artemisia who lives three doors down from me and has known you know that then the answer is yes or no (laughs) will I have good children if I marry Artemisia as opposed to if I marry Someone else, or if i don 't marry, and that 's of course more difficult for the answerer the uh, to give so people did use this as a kind of um you know lonely hearts column where uh, you know what you find out things about your personal life which you want to control desperately but actually you can't so there are two types or main types of oracle one is the public official one advising a city or an individual ruler the other is the purely individual and there are various ways in which oracles are, are delivered but lots of um, Greeks at one or other point in their life typically these life crises, marriage, um, birth, death, would consult an oracle, what's the future likely to be or how should I behave, should I do this or should I do that?
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: All those statues we don't want up, there should be a gallery of the um, overthrown, as it were, the dispossessed, a kind of rogues gallery of what we mustn't do.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
2: You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Met Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Moving on to the Olympics, there's
4: an huge wealth of of questions about that online and maybe you could just start by telling us why the olympics were were so important
2: they were important because they were religious Um, they were in honor of zeus of mount olympus that's why they're called olympics though they were actually celebrated not at mount olympus but down in the peloponnese uh, northwest uh, at a place which was called olympia they're important because they're religious they're important because only greeks may take part so they were what we call pan-hellenic all greeks only greeks and uh, to begin with in terms of the actual participants they were only for men uh, boys as well as adults but only males Later, it becomes possible if you own, for example, a racehorse or if you own a four horse chariot, then you can enter that and you're the owner and you win the prize if you win the prize. And the prize is just a symbolic prize, not a money prize. It's just an olive wreath. You then can become a female Olympic winner, but actually there wasn't one for 400 years. The Games were originated in early 8th century, but it wasn't until 396 BC that the first female Olympic victor who was a Spartan, a princess, she owned a four-horse chariot her chariot won the four horse chariot race but the first event and it was always the most important symbolically was just a dash it was about the 200 meter sprint and so the person who won that gave his name to the game so if orsippus won it that games was the games of orsippus they were celebrated every four years always in the same spot and greeks as the greek world expanded out west far as Spain up north and east as far as what's today Georgia so you get competitors and eventually winners from all around the Hellenic world all around the Mediterranean all around the Black Sea but some cities made a special fetish of trying to breed winners and so in other words they had dedicated uh, training grounds and they put a lot of money into even bribing people to come and leave their native city to come and sign up it's rather like cricket today or other sports where foreigners become naturalized to play for another country and one of those was in the south of Italy and what's called uh, Great Greece a place called Croton That seems to have specialised in producing winning um, sprinters. Other athletes were heavy event competitors. So they did wrestling, they did boxing, and then others did a bit of both. They did wrestling and javelin throwing and sprinting. And there were five and they were called pentathletes. It's where the original pentathlon came from. And then as time went on, the Olympics spawned three, not exactly rivals, but imitators. In other words, three other major panhellenic games. One in Delphi, one in Corinth, and um, one a place in the Peloponnese called Nemea. And Nemea, like Olympia, was in honour of Zeus. The one at Corinth was in honour of Poseidon. And the one at Delphi was in honour of Apollo. And the ultimate accolade was to be an athlete who'd won, or a wrestler, whatever, who'd won the prize. And there was only ever one prize, no silver medals, no uh, bronze medals at each of the four main Panhellenic Games. And
4: why were they held every four years? <laughs>
2: there is a view actually that originally they were held every year in other words annually but that because they took such a lot of organization and it's rather like modern olympics though they're always in the same place nevertheless the build-up to each one and if you've got the other three added in so that um, there were two in one year you know it, it operated that there was two in in each of the four-year cycle uh, you'd have two in one year then one then one then two in the like that um, a lot of preparation they're all all together with we think 50 games that a professional or semi-professional athlete could take part in so you want to spread the them out. But why were they four years to begin with? That's a very good question. It's a cycle which is not unknown elsewhere. For example, the Athenians' main festival was in honour of Athena, and it was called the Pan-Athenaic Festival. Well, every fourth year, that was a really big deal. So there were three minor versions, and then the fourth year, big deal. That probably was based on the, the Olympic notion of every four years is a big deal
4: and when was the last ancient greek olympic
2: games right christians as you uh, can imagine were not keen on for example zeus poseidon apollo <laughs> and therefore they wanted to expunge all traces of paganism and gradually they got to the point where following the foundation of Constantinople. In 330, which we talked about earlier, the Byzantine Christian emperors became what we call, what they called, orthodox. So extremely rabidly dogmatic, not just Christians, but Other Christians were heretics. Anything except my doxy is no good. You're going to go to hell if you don't believe what I believe is the truth about my religion. Well, one of these emperors, he was called Theodosius I, also nicknamed the Great. He simply uh, uttered an edict. All pagan festivals must forever after cease now. And this was in 393 AD CE. So that's the end of the Olympics and any other pagan such religious athletic festivals.
4: And what happened between, um, obviously we still have the Olympic Games now, uh, how did the Olympics change how did we get to where we are today there was a complete um,
2: absence of abeyance obviously competitive sports but nothing of an international or let alone global nature during the 19th century gradually the idea grows up that germany france england in some ways are the heirs to Ancient Greek culture, civilization, and Roman, of course. And so one of these Philhellenes, when Greece um, revolted from the Ottoman Empire, a bunch of non-Greeks called Philhellenes sent them money or even went to fight like baron. So Philhellenism grew in the 19th century. And there was one particular Philhellen, he was a baron, he was called Baron de Coubertin he got together an olympic movement interestingly inspired partly by coming to england going to much wenlock in shropshire where there was held something called an olympic games it was a purely local thing anyway he got the idea from that and he thought why are the english so particularly successful in, for example, military matters. They beat us on the field of Waterloo. Well, is it because of something to do with the English education, with the way they do competitive sports, for and so on? So he drew the inference it was, and that the way to make France great again, after the defeat by the Germans in 1870, was to introduce many more athletic competitions, building up to, and then In the 1890s, 1894, just actually at the time of Oscar Wilde, who was a philhellene of another kind, um, there was the first meeting of the Proto-International Olympic Committee in Paris in 1894. They agreed... We will hold the first revived Olympic Games, not in Olympia, which was a backwater, but in Athens, capital of Greece, the new state of Greece, in 1896, and the rest is history. That's when the modern Olympic Games movement restarted, 1896.
4: So what would you say is the biggest legacy of ancient Greece?
2: Democracy, but only in terms of its name, not directly as a legacy in terms of its form. Philosophy and science the originators of the scientific method, the presupposition that you can understand the world of nature without invoking the divine as an explanation. That goes back to the ancient Greeks. Ultimately, it's an ancient Greek who points out that the earth goes round the sun. Absolutely heretical notion until Copernicus proved it thousands of you know a thousand years later. But Greeks make these terrific leaps forward theatre, the word is Greek... We do theatre in some sense because the ancient Greeks invented it. When the Renaissance comes along, texts of the ancient Greek dramatists were printed in Greek. And then when the modern theatre develops and uh, inspiration is sought for discussion of such issues as uh, when is it okay to defy the established regime? Think of Antigone, just one example. When is it not right to bury your brother? When is it necessary to commit civil war? And so on. Greek theatre was a problem oriented theatre, especially Athenian, but often using myths derived from elsewhere than Athens, for example, Thebes. So theatre, philosophy, science, democracy, I would say, are the three main legacies which we have chosen to inherit and remake uh, in, in our own ways in the modern Western world.
4: So turning now to the Elgin Marbles, there's uh, obviously a lot of interest in that uh, topic as well so um may, maybe you could just summarize for us what exactly the elgin marbles are and, and what the story is there
2: it's a complicated story the elgin marbles named after the seventh uh, earl of elgin way up in the northeast of scotland he was our ambassador our man in istanbul and um, sometimes referred to in french as the sublime Porte. so he was our ambassador to the ottoman empire At that time, Greece, what what was ancient Greece, so including Athens, was a subject state of the Ottoman Empire. And therefore, if you as a foreigner wanted to do anything in Athens, you had to get the permission. Either of the locals, the people who actually on the ground, controlled Athens, and the Acropolis was a fort. It was a military occupation site, rather like Dublin in Ireland was where we Brits conquered and dominated Ireland from Dublin Castle. Well, the Acropolis of Athens was the equivalent for the Ottoman Empire for Greece. So Elgin goes to um, the Sublime Port, to Istanbul, in the late 18th century, 1798 or so, and somehow or other, and this is where the uh, legal complexities kick in right from the beginning, get some sort of permission to do something on the Acropolis of Athens. What it transpires he really wants to do initially is somehow remove what he takes to be both in themselves utterly admirable objects, aesthetically, but also objects which are being neglected and which have been um, badly treated and which are likely to continue to be treated and therefore will deteriorate. He, He claims to be saving these greek hellenic artifacts for the west for non-ottoman ottoman empire was the east the terrible turk and he's saving them now the timing of his intervention was fortuitous because at that very moment napoleon's france was attacking um the Ottomans' Egypt. You've probably all heard of the Battle of the Nile, Nelson, 1790, just when Elgin is in Istanbul. So my enemy's enemy is my friend. So we are the enemy of the French. French is the, are the enemy of the Ottomans. We are the enemy's friend, and therefore we are going to be the sultan's friend. He gives Elgin some sort of permission. Between 1800 and 1804... In round numbers, Elgin and his, obviously not personally, but his agents and uh, his workers remove as many of the um, objects from the Acropolis that they think are both portable, they're removable, portable, (laughs) transportable to London eventually. But originally it's thought, he thought to his baronial seat up in Elgin in Scotland not for the nation but for him because other aristocrats at Chatsworth and elsewhere they had their collections. so why shouldn't he and after all he'd gone to Istanbul you know rate, they end up um, in London on display and Elgin has spent a huge amount of money partly his own partly money that the government had given him but not paying to the Ottoman sultan but to bribe the governor of the acropolis the to pay the workmen to ship them get them to the port get them by sea and of course the first consignment sank um, off uh, an island uh, to the south of um, athens And terrible stories about how they got eventually to london and there the issue was and the um, government set up a committee of inquiry should the british nation acquire these from elgin they being considered as elgin's property to sell and uh, there was a great inquiry it took several weeks and they eventually agreed there was a lot of dissent in parliament an act of parliament whereby a sum of money was paid to elgin the marbles under his name mainly from the parthenon were then the property of the British nation and they were entrusted to the trustees of the British Museum which had been founded in 1753 just um, 50 60 years earlier and that's where they've remained since 1817 they've been on display more or less there and since the 1960s in the present gallery so why is it controversial well in 1800 or so there was no modern Greek state So it was a deal between Britain and then Turkey, nothing to do with the modern Greek state, which pretty much the first thing it did when it came into being in the 1830s, was request or demand that we Brits give back what... Now, this is where the issue comes. Did Elgin steal them? In a sense, yes, because he took clearly much more than any permit would have permitted. And he committed a lot of damage. I mean, a lot of the things fell down or they sank. Uh, You know, they never were all sorts of awful things about the mode in which they came to the British Museum ultimately it's um, somewhat like the situation we're in today about imperialism and slavery we're talking about very different world but these things that were done then which were thought to be okay then by some people are not thought to be okay by lots of people now so that's why there's an issue and there is a dedicated international committee of various national committees i'm on the british one to to try to persuade now we're not persuading only the british museum trustees but the government because it has to be by an act of parliament which rescinds that act of parliament of 1816 such that the british museum must yield up these uh, treasures as of now the british museum trustees says sorry uh, we own them or rather we own them on behalf of the British nation, so they must stay where they are, even though they're not brilliantly displayed, even though there's a dedicated, beautiful museum in Athens since 2009, in sight of the Acropolis, you actually see what's left of the Parthenon visually through a big picture window. All sorts of reasons why the reunification would be a very good thing, but it's very, very emotionally, politically, culturally charged.
4: So, in your view, do you think they ever will be returned?
2: I like to, I mean, I don't like to, but I don't think any time soon. I imagine a scenario where we, the British, that is the Parliament, so want to do the Greek state a favour because for example turkey or it might be china or it might be russia is putting through greece huge pressure on our way of life we so need and we so want greece to be on our side and we want to do them a favor then and only then i think it would be something as extreme as that that would prompt the british government of the day to propose an act of parliament in parliament For it to be passed and then for them to go back. Ideally, of course, there should be mutual, fruitful, uh, purely um, generous uh, exchange. The marbles go back. In return, the Greeks make available temporary loan, terrific objects previously never seen in London in the B.M., A friend of mine recently put a more wicked suggestion. You empty the gallery in which the Elgin marbles are shown, and into that you put not Greek statues from the ancient world, but... All those statues of, let's say, Colston and other slavers, all those statues we don't want up. There should be a gallery of the um, overthrown, as it were, the dispossessed, a kind of rogue's gallery of what we mustn't do. That is, be slavers, be imperialist, be sexist, and all the other terrible things that have been done in the past supposedly uh, with goodwill and, uh, you know, with general support then, but no longer tolerable now.
4: And what would be the significance if they were returned?
2: for the Greeks just an absolute flooding of um, joy and there is a downside which is that it's a bit nationalistic you know there's a sort of sense in which it plays to a sense of uh, individual superiority as a nation but actually the history of Greece is much more complicated than that (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, over here, only I think some diehard reactionaries would be really sorry. And they would feel, I think, partly bruised pride that they'd somehow not hung on to them and that I think is the feeling that motivates most trustees of the British Museum you become a trustee and then you feel the collection is yours so that you'd be somehow being robbed of something that in some real sense is yours when of course it isn't Uh, everything in the BM belongs to the British nation the trustees are trustees they hold it in trust for us but um, there would be some ructions and then they would have ripple effects. Um, other museums which hold bits of the Parthenon. But of course, what the defenders say, I'm sure this is the point of your question, floodgates if the elgin marbles go back to greece what about the benin bronzes to nigeria what about and then you could go on actually the um, british museum has repatriated certain objects that were previously in its possession i'm talking about human remains from uh, australasia for example that have gone back aboriginal corpses and bones but they've not repatriated any serious artifact as a to a a human remain.
4: And just finally, um, you mentioned there, Colston, um, where do you stand on... Uh, statues like this being taken
2: down i'm I'm one of those who believes that museums have a very important educative function and that such statues if they are found offensive by large numbers of persons in a public space then they should be put into a less public or even private space that is the sort of space a museum provides with very full captions as to when the statue was commissioned by whom why it was set up then why and how it was removed and what is its now and likely future significance as opposed to what was its significance or what was in the minds of the people who paid for example for colston in 1895 i think it was
4: and just finally um what can we expect from your latest book
2: From Thebes, well, that's a huge question. I, broadly speaking, point out or suggest that we should think of ancient Greek Thebes as, in its way, no less important than the other two or three really big uh, numbers, that is Sparta- Athens and Macedon with Philip and Alexander. Thebes was not just one city, I argue, it was two, a city of real historical significance, you know, the actual fabric. The politics, the people, but also a city of ideas, a city of myth, and the myths of Thebes they had their own mythology, quite separate from, for example, the Trojan War, they had their own dynastic and of course we know about this, they had their founding myths and so on, but through the Athenians and then much more recently, of course, modern interpreters, whether um, composers or playwrights or um, dramatists and um, directors, the Theban cycle of myth, Oedipus, Antigone, and so on, so on, has become absolutely central to our Western tradition. Another sideline, and um, more controversial, Freud, thoroughly European, trained in psychology, he loved ancient Greece, loved ancient Egypt as well. Well, for him, a particular form of attitude, a psychological development of a human male was, in his view, the Oedipus complex. Well, insofar as Freudian psychology has infected or affected a lot of the way we think of human character, human character development, especially psychosexual, well, the Oedipus myth is absolutely central to that. So, in its way, Thebes has had a terrific legacy um, on modern mainly European, obviously Western, uh, Euro-American culture.
0: That was Professor Paul Cartledge. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again tomorrow for a discussion about the survival strategies of medieval royal dynasties.